Today on the Matt Walsh Show, a day after a serial felon and career criminal mowed down dozens of people at a Christmas parade, Democrats are out in public calling for more criminals to be released into our communities. Meanwhile, the killer was a BLM supporter, apparently, and apparently a racist who carried out his attack an hour from Kenosha, two days after the Rittenhouse verdict. Will we ever be told the truth about his motives? And New York goes nuclear in the war on history, taking down a 200-year-old Thomas Jefferson statue and removing a Theodore Roosevelt statue from a museum. You have to hear the reason they gave for this decision. It's almost impossible to believe. Plus, Kyle Rittenhouse talks to Tucker Carlson. Condoleezza Rice calls for more female coaches in the NFL. And Joe Biden claims that there's an epidemic of anti-trans hate crimes. Is that true? No, it isn't. But we'll discuss that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Well, Black Friday is uh, coming up, and it's one of the biggest shopping days of the year, obviously, but that also means it's one of the biggest opportunities for scammers. Some of the most common scams include buying a gift online that never arrives, sellers demanding payments with gift cards, fake shopping websites, and fake delivery notifications. These are all things that you potentially encounter um, when you're online on Black Friday. So it's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. Every day we put our information at risk on the internet. In an instant, a cybercriminal could steal what's yours, sometimes even harm your finances, your credit, your reputation. All of that is on the line, potentially. That's why it's so good that there's LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats, uh, things that you might not even think about or you would never think to check or wouldn't be able to check like your social security number being for sale on the dark web. If they detect your information has potentially been compromised, they'll send you an alert. If, God forbid, uh, something does happen, they have identity theft or identity restoration specialists on staff that can help you there as well. So, look, nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can help protect what's yours with LifeLock by Norton. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year by going to LifeLock.com Walsh. That's LifeLock.com Walsh for 25% off. Say what you want about the Democrats, and there's plenty you can say, almost all of it bad, but at least they always stay on message. And I mean, always. And that didn't change yesterday after the massacre in uh, Waukesha, where a serial felon, career criminal, previously convicted of crimes ranging from bail jumping to child rape, domestic abuse, and so on, currently out on what the DA now admits was inappropriately low bail, plowed his car intentionally into a Christmas parade and murdered five people, seriously injuring uh, more, many more, including, uh, including children. And yet, in spite of this event, or maybe because of it, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez thought that yesterday of all days would be the best and most appropriate time to send a letter to five district attorneys in New York criticizing, quote, excessive bail. She tweeted yesterday, quote, today we sent a letter with Representative Maloney and Representative Raskin to to, uh, New York City's five district attorneys requesting information on excessive bail in in, in the New York City court system. When prosecutors seek excessive cash bail, it results in increased rates of incarceration, particularly for low-income defendants. More than 75% of individuals in custody haven't been convicted of a crime and are confined in unsafe conditions simply because they cannot afford cash bail. Condemning thousands of individuals to languish in such environments as they await trial is unacceptable. Well, what's better, Ms. Cortez, that they languish in jail or that they plow through a Christmas parade and run over a bunch of small children. Which outcome is more acceptable to you on balance? Don't answer that. What's more important, to protect the physical safety of innocent civilians or to cater to the emotional needs of violent criminals? We'll get back to that question in a moment. But first, uh, here's something from AOC's fellow squad goblin, Rashida Tlaib. She did an interview on Axios this week 
where she talked about her plan to release all of the inmates from federal prison. All of them. Not a joke. That's a thing she actually wants to do. Let's listen to that. In 2020, you endorsed the BREATHE Act, which is a series of proposals to transform America's criminal justice system Mm -hmm. and create, quote, a roadmap for prison abolition. The BREATHE Act proposes emptying federal detention facilities within 10 years. To what extent have you wrestled with any potential downsides of releasing into society every single person who's currently in a federal prison? Yeah, I, again, I think that everyone's like, oh my God, we're going to just release everybody. That's not that's what, what the, that's Yeah, is. but did you see how many people are mentally ill that are in prison right now? No, I know, but the act that you so endorsed keep, actually gonna, says release everyone in But 10 in 10 years. years, but think about it, who are releasing? But there are like human traffickers oh i know child sex so but I you're mean, saying do you mean that you don't actually support that because no, you, you endorse the bill. no i endorse the breathe act and looking at federal the policies and how we incarcerate absolutely but it says in there but you cannot you cannot you cannot just blankly say oh look she wants that's not what i'm but that's like in plain text there are human traffickers oh i know just silly human traffickers i mean come on who have they ever hurt Notice something. In order to defend her plan to release violent criminals from federal prison, she assures us that most of them are also crazy. This is a defense of the plan. This is supposed to make us feel better. Hey, don't worry about the psychopathic child rapist and murderer moving in next door. He's just crazy. Okay, sleep tight. This Breathe Act monstrosity, by the way, not only abolishes federal prisons and dumps its contents back into society, but also abolishes the death penalty, of course, and abolishes life sentences. There'd be no more life sentences. That would mean that no matter what a person does, no matter what crime they commit, they would be guaranteed to end up back in our communities after marinating in a stew with other violent felons for several years or decades. Now, you may take solace in the fact that we're perhaps a little ways away from the point where a a bill like this can actually be passed. But if you want to know what it will look like when we get there, You need to only look towards the Democrat-run cities across the country. They are the Petri dish, the laboratory, where democratic social experiments are conducted. I mean, if you live in one of these cities, then you are part of a vast human experiment. um, And you are a test subject in that experiment. The result is, you know, 50 people run over in Wisconsin. A skyrocketing street, street violence all across the country. Organized flash gangs of looters emptying department store shelves in places like San Francisco. This is the democratic vision, their utopian ideal. It should be clear by now, and should have been clear long ago, that the push for criminal justice reform is not fueled by compassion. Even a misguided compassion. Because compassion literally means co-suffering, co-passion. To suffer alongside someone else. When you have compassion for someone, you take on their suffering to help alleviate it. You help carry their cross. But the people who send violent criminals into our neighborhoods, they have quite clearly uh, no concern for human suffering at all. Their goals are ideological and political. And for them, the political outweighs everything. All other concerns are outweighed by the political. And they're willing to let countless people suffer and die Countless innocents fall prey to violence in order to achieve their political and ideological ends. It is, in every way, the opposite of compassion. If you're truly compassionate, and it's a good thing to be compassionate, 
That is, you're truly concerned with alleviating human suffering. And that's what a, that's what a compassionate person is worried about. Then the sort of criminal justice reform you would advocate is the sort that puts more violent criminals in prison and keeps them there for longer. That's the reform we need, as is painfully obvious by now. That's what Republicans should be advocating for. I'm not interested in any Republican who, go, who, who jumps on board the criminal justice reform bandwagon, at least criminal justice reform as it is, uh, as it is seen by the left, who adopts the leftist view of the sort of reform we need in the criminal justice system. And there are a lot of Republicans who have jumped on that bandwagon, to include Donald Trump. No, the reform we need is that we're going we're gonna to take violent, dangerous people and put them in a cage away from the innocent people, away from our children and our wives, and keep them there for a long time, if not forever. But getting back to the specific case in uh, Wakesha, we know why the assailant, Daryl Brooks, was on the street. We know that, you know, he should not have been there. But there's still a question of why he did what he did. Their narrative from the media is that Brooks was fleeing the scene of another crime. But police held a press conference yesterday where they clarified that he was not being pursued. He was not actively fleeing anything. Listen to that. At 4.39 p.m. on Sunday, November 21st, 2021, a lone subject intentionally drove his maroon SUV through barricades into a crowd of people that was celebrating the Waukesha Christmas Parade, which resulted in killing five individuals and injuring 48 additional individuals. I just received information that uh, two of the 48 are children and they're in critical condition. We have information that the suspect prior to the incident was involved in a domestic disturbance, which was just minutes prior. And the suspect left that scene just prior to our arrival uh, to the domestic uh, disturbance. When the suspect was driving through into the crowd, one officer did discharge his firearm and fired shots at the suspect to stop uh, the threat. But due to the amount of people, had to stop uh, and uh, stop and fire no did not fire any other additional shots. The officer is on administrative leave as part of the department protocol. No one was injured as a result of the officer firing uh, his discharge and his fire weapon, firearm. The subject was taken into custody a short distance from the scene and we are confident he acted alone. There's no evidence that this is a terrorist incident. No evidence of a terrorist incident. So it was intentional, obviously. He wasn't fleeing from anything, which was also obvious. I said that yesterday before the police officer there confirmed it. Uh, Clearly, this was not someone who was trying to evade the police by driving through a parade. Okay, that's not what you do when you're trying to escape the cops. And yet they can still declare less than 24 hours after the attack that it wasn't politically or racially motivated. How? Isn't the attack itself evidence of a terrorist attack? I mean, what's the evidence of a terrorist attack? I don't know. The attack? He drove through a parade. The fact that he intentionally plowed his car into a parade and killed and injured dozens of people, isn't that at least evidence of a terrorist attack? We also know that Brooks had expressed anti-white and pro-BLM views on his social media pages. 
apparently, and uh, in his rap songs. We know that this attack was carried out less than an hour from Kenosha, two days after the not guilty verdict. Not only is there evidence of a racially and politically motivated terrorist attack here, but that is the most reasonable assumption at this point. And assumptions may be all we ever have. As I said yesterday, this story will be stuffed down the memory hole just like Las Vegas, and that's already happening. Because every aspect of this event, no matter the reason, no matter the motive, every aspect of this event is toxic to the Democrat narrative. The only thing that makes it difficult for them to uh, really memory hole this thing is that Brooks is still alive. Perhaps that will change too. Who knows? But we can be sure about one thing. They will never tell us the full truth about this. Ever. Now let's get to our five headlines. If you don't already have one, uh, now is the time to get a reliable VPN like ExpressVPN. That's the top one. That's the one to go with. Using the internet without ExpressVPN, it's like having a first aid kit but not keeping it stocked up. I mean... Most of the time, you'll probably be fine, but what if you suddenly get in trouble and you need it? Then you're going to wish you had it. By then, it's too late, right? So get ExpressVPN now. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, passwords, financial details, etc. doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed, and uh, like a smart 12-year-old could do it. Your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling personal information on the dark web. Um, Why use ExpressVPN? Well, because you get an encrypted tunnel. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Hackers are not able to steal your sensitive data. And also, it's very secure. Um, It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. That's how secure it is. So secure your online uh, data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash Walsh. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Walsh. And you can get an extra three months for free. ExpressVPN.com slash Walsh. Uh, all right. I'm still, uh, you know, I, I, I think I've shared with you before and it's hard for me to be uh, vulnerable, but I, I hope you appreciate that, that at times I can be, um, I can be vulnerable and I can reveal things about myself that are difficult to reveal. So, so for example, look, I, I don't like spiders. I don't. Okay. I, I fear nothing in life except spiders. That's the only thing. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe 10 or 15 other things. But mainly spiders. I just, I, you know, I, I, to me, they, they look like, it's hard for me to even come to terms with the fact that a loving God would create spiders. To me, they look like beasts that escaped from hell at some point during creation. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not proposing that. It's not an actual theological theory on my part, but that's how they seem to me. Anyway, so we have, a, you know, like a, an infestation in our basement of, um, of wolf spiders. And so uh, two nights ago, we went down there into like the basement, into like the creepiest part of the basement where the spiders always are. And we had some, my wife and I were putting some traps down to catch the spiders. And then my wife thought it'd be really funny um, while I was laying a trap down to run out of the basement and uh, turn the light off and then shut the door so that I was in pitch black surrounded by the wolf spiders. That is not funny at all. Here's the thing. And I, and I, I maintained my composure, and it was okay. She thought it was hilarious. This is the double standard that we understand as men. Because here's what I know. I could never do that. If I had ever done anything like that, as a man, it, th- th- this, it would not be funny. We'd be in marriage counseling for it. So, 
But you understand that. That's that's one of those. As a when you're married, you you come to accept certain basic double standards. You just have to. And I think this is probably one of them. All right. So I want to start with this. Just a quick update. Um, we've chronicled the fight over my event at uh, SLU, St. Louis University, which is uh, was supposed to be on December first, and they had the petition. They were trying to stop me from coming. And the administration, they were pulling all these little dirty tricks behind the scene to try to, you know, all these things because they didn't want me to come. And um, I did receive word yesterday that the event will go forward as planned. So if you live anywhere near St. Louis and you want to come on December 1st and see the event, you can. Um, You know, they had their petition. I had mine. We got up to about 20,000. I've I've shut the petition down. Now we got to to almost 20,000 signatures. And uh, I've declared victory because the event will happen. Here's, Here's what it comes down to. Never get into into a petition war with the guy who raised a hundred grand for Abuela, or who, who changed addresses so that I could speak at a school board meeting in Virginia. Just don't don't do that. And the thing is, even it's probably for the best. And maybe the university realized this that you just let me do the event because if you had shut it down, I would have showed up there with a bullhorn. Okay, here's what you have to understand about me: I am very petty and extremely annoying. I know that about myself. And it's, 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 so it's best to just not do this. Leave my events, events alone. This is, a, this is for, for all future schools. It's not worth it. You're just bringing more attention to me. I like the attention. I, get even, I become even more insufferable when you do that. Best thing is just let me do the event. Leave it alone. I'll come and do it and that'll be it. All right? Good. Um, Next, this is from the Daily Wire. It says, and you, you just have to listen to this story to, as I said, it's almost unbelievable, some aspects of this story. Okay, a statue of President Theodore Roosevelt will be relocated from the front of the American Museum of Natural History. This is in New York, where it stood for more than 80 years. The Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library Foundation announced in a press release Friday that the statue of the uh, president, naturalist, and founder of the National Park Service will be moved to Roosevelt's presidential library, which is set to open in 2026. Um, It says, uh, this is from the statement. It reads, the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library today announced that it has entered into an agreement with the city of New York for the long-term loan and reconsideration of the equestrian statue designed by James Earl Frazier, which was commissioned by the Board of Trustees of the New York State Roosevelt Memorial in 1929. The statement then explained that the reason for the relocation was because the statue was problematic. And then, and listen to this. Okay. The board of TR uh, Library believes the equestrian statue is problematic in its composition. Moreover, its current location denies passers-by consent and context. The agreement with the city allows the TR Library to relocate the statue for storage while considering a display uh, that would enable it to serve as an important tool to study our nation's past. Okay, the statue does not get consent. It's problematic. Why is it problematic? Well, because um, it's a it, uh, Theodore Roosevelt is on a is on a. Well, they never explain. I've actually read three articles about them moving this statue, so I could maybe get a, a more fleshed out argument for what makes it problematic. But all I've seen is just it's problematic. And we're left to guess what's problematic about it, and I guess it's because Theodore Roosevelt is on a is on a uh, it's an equestrian statue, so he's on a horse in the statue, and he is flanked by two uh, by um, a Native American man and an African man who are walking alongside him, 
And pretty clearly, they're, they are you know, guides, as he is, because he was an explorer among his many um, accolades and, and titles. And so, and, and so it's, it's pretty clear that's, that's the context of the statue. Why is that problematic? I mean, it's, it's a historical depiction of a thing that really happened. A Native American guide that they, Native Americans were excellent guides. Why is, is that, a, is that an insult? Are we not supposed to acknowledge that anymore? But gets consent. Let's, can we, can we home in on that for just a moment? The statue does not get consent. It has, it, the statue has violated the consent of the people passing by it. How exactly would a statue go about uh, obtaining consent? So you can, here's what we're being told now in New York. You can have your consent violated by an inanimate object. This is what, like a form of, is this, is this like a form of sexual assault that the, the statue is, uh, is guilty of? Because the statue didn't get consent. The statue did not get consent from you before it decided to exist. If you come across an object that you don't want to see, then your consent is violated. My God. This, the phrase beyond parody doesn't even begin to cover this. I mean, we could say this is like something out of the Babylon Bee, but it's, it's, it's worse than that. I, I mean, a year ago, if the Babylon Bee had, had put out a headline about how a statue was being taken down because it violated consent, we, we, I probably wouldn't have laughed at it because I would have said, well, that's a little bit too, you know, that's, that's a little, that, uh, you know, that's not very realistic. In order to be successful satire or parody, it has to be, there has to be some, some realism to it, right? That's what makes it funny. I probably would have said, well, that's, uh, that's a little too far out of left field. Truly stranger than fiction, we can say. And, I, and I'm still wondering, how does a statue get consent? And which statues need to obtain consent? And why just statues? I mean, why not all objects? There are a great many objects that I'm forced to see that I find quite hideous and upsetting. Every city in America that you go to now, they've got these, these, uh, these modern art, if I can even call them art, monstrosities, just mangled jumbles of metal placed in the middle of the town square. And I got to walk by that and I'm extremely annoyed. I, I find it even nauseating in some way and slightly disturbing. I never get consent. No one, no one consulted me. The statue didn't consult me. So maybe we need to post like signs every five feet for 10 miles leading up to the statue, warning that the statue is coming. And then, and then more signs like every, every uh, five feet for the next 10 miles after you pass by the statue with information for like counselors in case you were traumatized by what you just saw. Is that what we need? My God in heaven. And, and also, this is in a museum, right? So remember what we've been told? Is that, um, is that well, we, no, this is not a war on history. We're taking down all these monuments and statues, and we're just, we're moving them to museums. Well, now the museums are getting rid of them too. And now it's being sent to, to the uh, Theodore Roosevelt Library, which, by the way, is not built yet, and will be in North Dakota, where like five people and a moose will see it. 
And the Theodore Roosevelt Library has said they're probably going to change the statue. They're going to make some alterations, potentially, to the statue before they put it on display for nobody to see in North Dakota. Oh, but it's not a war on history, right? There's no slippery slope here. Meanwhile, this is also in New York. Um, Same day. It says, uh, Thomas Jefferson, New York Post, says, Thomas Jefferson is no longer in the room where it happens. Art handlers packed up an 884-pound statue of Jefferson in a wooden crate Monday after a mayoral commission voted to banish the likeness of the nation's third president from City Hall, where it's resided for nearly two centuries because he owned slaves. About a dozen workers with martial uh, fine arts spent several hours carefully removing the painted plaster monument from its pedestal inside the city council chamber and surrounding it with sections of foam and wooden boards. Um, Where is he going? He is going to, uh, he'll be on a long-term loan to the New York Historical Society, which plans to have Jefferson's model survive in its lobby and reading room. No, we're just moving the statues to a museum. Oh, no, now we're just moving them to a historical society. No, now we're just moving them to storage. Oh, no, now we're just moving them to a dumpster. But the dumpster will make sure that they're they're respected there. You know, uh, this is one, well, I always say I hate to say I told you so, but we we know that that's not true. So I'll I'll skip over that, that lie. I did tell you so on this. I wasn't the only one. A few of us did. And just a few. I mean, I've been warning about this. You can can go fact check me on Google if you want. Four, five, six years I've been writing about this. About how it was going to, to, we were going to get to this point. This is where we were headed. The moment they started tearing down the Confederate statues, this was inevitable. And, you know, now, of course, you can say that. And everybody, at least on the right, will agree with you. But four years ago, five years ago, when they were getting rid of, uh, you know, of the Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee um, monuments, if you had made that argument that, hey, this is a war on American history and they're going to come for the founders next. If you, when you made that argument four or five years ago, you had a great many people, certainly everybody on the left and even a lot of people on the right would attack you. And say this is a slippery slope fallacy. It's not going to happen. It's not the same thing. How dare you draw a comparison? Well, not to relive ancient history now, but maybe it might be worthwhile to explain. Like, how did I know five years ago that it would get to this point? Um, It's not because I have a crystal ball and it wasn't a lucky guess either. So there's, there's two things. One is precedent. Okay, so all I had to do was listen to what the people who were advocating tearing down the Confederate monuments, what reasons were they giving? And the reasons were, these are, these are the two reasons. They were traitors and they supported slavery. Now, there, there might be other reasons that you could potentially come up with to get rid of some of these statues. But those were not the reasons that the people doing it were, were providing. For them, it was they were traitors and they, were, they supported slavery. Well, it should be really obvious that, oh, well, hold on a second. Traitors to their government you know, and, uh, and supported slavery. Well, the founding fathers, same thing. 
Not exactly the same situation, different situation. The Revolutionary War is not the same as the Civil War, but they, they owned slaves, so they supported slavery, and they were traitors to the crown. If they, had, if, the, if they had lost, if they had been the losers in the Revolutionary War, they would have been hung as traitors and remembered that way by history. And that's all, that's the precedent. Now, you can get into the nuances and draw distinctions, and there's plenty of nuanced distinctions you can make um, to differentiate Thomas Jefferson from Robert E. Lee. But those two basic things apply to both. And so it wasn't hard to connect the dots and say, well, if this is the reason they're giving, then here we go. And really, we could put the traitor thing aside because that's 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 was was really you know a, a, a secondary complaint about the people from the people tearing down the Confederate statues. Really, it was all about slavery, right? And well, if if that's it, then everybody's coming down. And if it's not just slavery, but racism in general, then then every, every almost everyone in history who was born prior to, you know, about 40 years ago or 30 years ago. None of them passed that litmus test. Because they're all racist by our standards today. And if they lived in the 19th century or prior to that, very good chance they supported slavery. If they lived in the 16th century or prior to that, almost certainly they supported slavery. Um, so that's how we knew. And also the second thing is that the people who were carrying out this campaign to tear down the Confederate statues and now the founders and everybody else and, and, and Theodore Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln monuments have also come under attack and his, his name's been, you know, they're considering taking his name, name off of various buildings and school and uh, school buildings and everything. The other thing is that we could, we could look at this mob and, and see that um, these are not just people who are passionate about Civil War history. Okay, these are people who have a, a, a beef against America itself, against American history. Which is why I always said from the very beginning when it came to the Confederate statues, even if you could see an argument for getting rid of some of these Confederate statues, you, sh- you still should not be joining hands with this mob. Your message should be, your response should be, hey, some of these statues, maybe there's an argument for taking them down, but not right now. And not like this. This, th- this is not how we make these kinds of decisions. It is never a good sign when mobs of people are going around the country tearing down century-old monuments. That never leads to anything good. All right, next. Um, Kyle Rittenhouse's defense attorney was on Fox yesterday and had some thoughts about what Kyle should do um, now that he's free. And I'm not sure that I totally agree. Let's listen. Yeah, my advice would be to change his name and start his life over. Um, He's very recognizable right now. There's a lot of people who I don't think... um, have his best interests at heart uh, and probably want to make him a symbol of something I don't think he wants to be necessarily um, associated with. And once you give up your name and your likeness and you be join those causes, 
I think a lot of people will use you for their own purposes and you won't be able to control it. Well, uh, giving my two cents, not that my two cents really matters or, or the, or the, you know, the thoughts of Mark Richards, his defense attorney, it doesn't really matter. I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse will do what, what he thinks is right for his own life. But I, I will say that uh, I, I personally disagree. I think you've, you know, I mean, change your name and, and, uh, and, go, and, and go away and hide. He didn't do anything wrong. That's what, that's what a guilty person does. That's what someone who's done something shameful. You know, that, that's what you do. That's like a, if you're a sex offender and once you're off the registry, which you really never should be off of, but once you're off of the registry, maybe you try to change your name or something or go away in shame. Um, that's not Kyle Rittenhouse. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's been wronged. And so my advice would be very much from the uh, approach from the other end here, uh, fight for your name. Fight to clear your name. Do, do what is right for you in your own life. But if it were me, that's what I would do. You know, cha- change your name and uh, slink away into obscurity. If that's what you think will bring you the most peace and joy in your life, then go ahead and do it. There's not anything morally wrong with that. I'm not saying that, but you know, the, the people who have um, the fact that your name is now associated with murder and racism, that's not because of you. It's not anything you did wrong. And so I would, I would fight for it. Another uh, interesting tidbit, Kyle Rittenhouse was uh, interviewed by Tucker Carlson. And big shocker here, he says that Lynn Wood is uh, apparently a con artist. Who would have guessed? How long were you there? I was in jail for 87 days, and this goes as follows in with Lynn Wood, who Lynn Wood was raising money on my behalf, and he held me in jail for 87 days, disrespected my wishes, put me on media interviews, which... I should never have done what she said. Oh, you're going to go talk to the Washington Post, which was not a good idea. Along with John Pierce, they said I was safer in jail instead of at home with my family. And then after I'm billed. Your lawyer said that. My lawyer said that. John Pierce and Lynn Wood. 87 days is a long time to be in jail. It, it was it was very long. I lost a lot of weight in there. I, I, I since then gained it back. I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> uh. 87 days of not being with my family for defending myself and being taken advantage to being used for a cause by these by John Pierce and Lynn Wood trying to solicit not solicit trying to raise money so they can take it for their own benefit not trying to set me free so you think they could have raised the money for bail faster but they didn't um i believe it I believe sometime in September, September 5th, I want to say, they had over a million dollars and bail was set and able to be posted in September. So they could have had me sign the waiver for extradition and had me back in Wisconsin and I could have been bailed out by mid-September. But they wanted to keep me in jail until November 20th. He's a really impressive kid, by the way. I watched the interview and uh, I was very impressed with him. Really composed and poised. Um, which is tremendous given given what he's what he's been through. I mean, m- most most people in general 
takes, you know, sitting on camera in, in that kind of environment, even talking to someone who's friendly to you, um, it's hard to come off well, uh, but especially given everything he's been through. I was very impressed with that. As far as Lynn Wood goes, man, I got to say, I, I was somewhat amazed at this time last year when I got on this show and on Twitter and, and I criticized Lynn Wood um, when he was pushing all that Kraken stuff with uh, Sidney Powell and, you know, they're going to release the Kraken and uh, uh, it's, it's going to be the thing that breaks the case wide open and, and uh, Trump will be reinstated as president. Uh, Biden will, will never be president. They were promising that. Um, and as long as we give them money, like Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell, uh, we give them personally, we, we give them money and, uh, and, and we'll never be told exactly what they're doing with the money or how that's going to help anything. But um, as long as we do that, then everything will be fine. And I said at the time that the guy, Linwood, is a con artist and a sleazy snake oil salesman and just a slime ball. And really pretty obvious that he's all of those things. And lots of people uh, on, you know, watch the show, criticize me on Twitter, attack me really angrily. And this is one thing we've got to be better about on the right, I think. We can't fall for con artists like this. We just got to be smarter than that. There shouldn't be any Lynn Woods on the right. Um, we shouldn't allow that. And it's embarrassing. It really is. Because you, you, you see these guys and you think, well, he's such an obvious grifter. How could anyone fall for it? But then you remember that con artists don't need to fool everybody or even most people, or even, even most of the minority of people. They only, need, they only need to fool some people and fool them hard, right? It's like the, whatever, the Nigerian prince scammers and all those really obvious email scams that you get. They don't need even 5% of the people who take the email, who, who get the email and take it seriously. They just need a relative handful, and those people they take for all they're worth. That's how cults work also, same principle. And you find that, that some people have something in them, a certain part of their brain. And sometimes it's, it's hard to, to figure out because some of the people, back, going again, back a year ago, some of the people that I talked to about Lynn Wood and, and were totally buying into it and saw him as like the savior of the republic. I remember talking to people and having them say that to my face, look me in the eyes and call him literally a savior. And these people were not stupid. They're smart people. Some of them smarter than me, which is not hard to do. So what is it exactly? And I think if I were to find the most generous interpretation, I think some people have a sort of overactive sense of loyalty. And um, these con artists know how to tap into that. Cult leaders know how to tap into that. They know how to exploit that overdeveloped loyalty instinct that some people have, even some smart people. Meanwhile, they themselves have no loyalty instinct at all. So they're loyal to no one. They have no honor, no integrity. They don't care about anybody but themselves. And they're exploiting those who are too easily loyal, too eager to be loyal. So I think that's um, part of what it is. Maybe I'm just jealous too, because as you know, I'm an aspiring cult leader uh, with the Sweet Baby Gang. But one thing I know is, is that my Sweet Babies, they would never... They, they would never have for me, you know, they would never let me get away with the kinds of things that Lynn Wood gets away with. I know that. When I step out of line, even the sweet babies will call me on it in a, in a heartbeat. 
And I have to begrudgingly appreciate that. Okay, next we got Condoleezza Rice. Uh, She made an appearance on um, Monday Night Football with these broadcasts that now Eli Manning and Peyton Manning do. And she talked about the need to get more women involved in football. And you can only imagine how I might feel about that. But let's listen. Hey, hey, Condi, women have made great strides in the NFL in the past years. There's 12 female coaches in the NFL. Just talk about what are the next steps for women in the NFL. You've been very outspoken over the years about the need for more movement for women in the NFL. Well, I'm really glad to see women in the front offices. That makes a big difference. And by the way, in the front office of the NFL as well. And then uh, women on the field as officials. Uh, that's a wonderful breakthrough. And uh, increasingly uh, on coaching staffs, I think the next breakthrough is uh, to see if women can find their way into, say, position coaches. Uh, because if you're a position coach, you've got a shot then at a uh, coordinator. I've never thought uh, that you're just going to put a woman in there. You're going to have to have somebody who goes through that progression. But uh, I'm really proud of what the women in the NFL are doing. Uh, it's high time because uh, you do not have to have played this game necessarily with all due respect to present company uh, to to understand it and I think to, to coach it well. Um, yeah, it's high time to have women coaches in the NFL. Why exactly? Like what, what, what problem does that solve to put uh, women on the sidelines in the NFL as football coaches? No, we don't need women as football coaches. Uh, we, we don't. Come on. Here's, here's the thing, and Condoleezza Rice is correct, that you don't, need, you don't necessarily need to have played the game to be a coach. And there are plenty of great players who have made really lousy coaches. So just because you know how to play a position doesn't mean that you know how to coach it. Just because you, you know, are an expert in a certain field doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a good teacher. So we, we know about that. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a different skill set. Fine, you don't need to, be, to have played it. Okay. But what qualities do you need in order to be a a football coach? And yeah, you need knowledge of the game. It helps to have played it, to have have that firsthand knowledge. But you also need to be, as a football coach, you need to be a leader of men. Okay, football coaches are, the good ones anyway, are leaders of men. And uh, women are not leaders of men. That's not to say they can't be leaders. But a woman is not going to be the most effective leader of a group of young men. Now, if you've got in a different environment, like a, a teacher in a, in, a, in a schoolroom, in a classroom, is also a leader. The good ones are leaders. And there's lots of great uh, female teachers, obviously. But in a football environment where it's all men, you need men to be leaders of those men especially because you're going out onto the sort of uh, metaphorical battlefield and, uh, and uh, you know, it's all a game anyway. So it doesn't really matter in the end. It's not actual battle, but it is a, it's a physically demanding, taxing thing. You're putting, your, you're putting your, your physical safety on the line and everything else. And that's why it's so important to, be leader, to, ha- to have coaches that are good leaders of men. And y- yeah, you need to be a man to do that. Why is that? Well, because, you know, 95% of leadership is not, is not d- doesn't happen through speaking, there's only about 5% that involves lecturing and speaking and telling and saying things and, ha- and uh, coming up with good lessons and everything like that. And yeah, men and women both can do that. 
But most 95% of leadership is done through example. You are modeling. So if you want to be a leader of men, you have to model uh, for, for young men. The, you, know, you, you have to show them the path by walking it yourself. And men cannot look to women to find out how to be good men, just like women can't look to men to find that out about women, about themselves. All of these things should be pretty obvious, but I'm sure Media Matters will have some fun with that one. Okay, one other quick thing. Um, don't have a lot of time for this, but this is, I just wanted to mention this. This is from Pink News, of course, one of my favorite media outlets. It says, U.S. President Joe Biden honored the dozens of trans people lost to a horrifying wave of violence on Transgender Day of Remembrance. On Saturday, uh, the world grew silent as countless memorialized and celebrated the lives of victims of anti-trans violence. Among them was Biden, who in a White House news release paid tribute to those we lost in the deadliest year on record for transgender Americans. The um, White House later hosted a vigil in recognition of trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people lost to violence, with second gentleman Doug Emhoff leading the ceremony. But seemingly capturing the extent of the climate of fear felt by trans Americans, Biden's address was out of date mere moments after it was published. It says, uh, this is Biden, he said, quote, this year, at least 46 transgender individuals in this country were killed in horrifying acts of violence. And then it goes on to say that actually the death toll now is 48. Okay. So it's the deadliest year on record for trans people. So deadly that the president of the United States needs to hold a, a vigil for them. How many trans people have been murdered? 48. The entire year up to now in the whole country. Now, all murders are very sad, but, but what, what do we expect exactly? Do we expect the, the trans murder rate to be zero? Every, all people, no matter what group you belong to, no matter what your gender identity is, you are susceptible to potentially being murdered, unfortunately, because you're a mortal human being. And so you take any random group of people. We could take plumbers. Let's just take plumbers. Or you know, How many plumbers have been murdered th- this year? Probably not zero. Does that automatically mean that there's some sort of anti-plumber hate crime epidemic? No, what we find is that actually the trans murder rate is very, very low. It is significantly lower. It's like a third of the murder rate of the general population. Okay, so I say that again. If you're a trans person, statistically, you are much less likely to be murdered than if you are a non-trans person. And then if you look at the, at the individual cases, because you'll notice something, when we're told about the trans uh, you know, hate crime epidemic, supposedly, um, they're always very vague about it. They say 48 trans people have been murdered, and those are all of the murders. And then they sort of vaguely say, oh, hate and discrimination. But then if you ask, well, what, you know, can you give me some examples of like, are, are you saying that there are people out there hunting trans people and murdering them for being trans. Can you give me some examples of that? Is that all 48 of them? That's when they go silent. Because in reality, when you actually look at the individual cases, as I have done and others have done, uh, so Rab Amari has a, an article about it uh, today, I think in the New York Post. Uh, the Federalist has, has done some research into this. When you look at the individual cases, you discover that in almost every case, when a trans person is murdered, it's because it's drug-related, 
it's gang related, it's prostitution related, um, or it's related, or it's related to domestic violence. In other words, it's it's the same reason why most people are murdered. The same kind of risk categories apply to trans people as applies to the general population. Anti-trans hatred or bigotry has nothing to do with almost any of it. And yet they still talk about the trans hate crime epidemic, which is a total fabrication. It's a fantasy. It doesn't exist for the record. All right. Now time for the comment section. Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. All right. uh, Before we get to some of the comments here, if uh, we mentioned yesterday, we've launched this uh, merchandise store, the the merch store on... um, on dailywire.com. And uh, if you go to dailywire.com slash shop, you can go and uh, you can find all the all the hosts. We have our own merchandise. But what you want to do is skip by all the other hosts and go right to my page. And I have to say, yeah, I was looking at some of this merchandise last night and I, I, I think, I know I'm biased, but I think we have some great merchandise. We'll put a, some uh, images up on the screen here, but we have some real, I am jealous of my own merchandise. I, I want all of this merchandise for myself. I think it's really good. We've got... Um, We've got a couple different skews of the, the Sweet Baby Gang t-shirt now. So if you're one of those people who feels weird about wearing, you know, a shirt with a picture of a bearded guy with a, with a diaper, if you're, you know, if that's how you feel, if you're a little discriminatory like that, then we do have a Sweet Baby Gang shirt that doesn't have, um, doesn't have the diaper. We've got a return or die shirt with a picture of a shopping cart. That probably is my favorite. We've got some anti-panda related gear, which is, which is really good. Uh, save a Boila. We got a Save a Boila shirt. So a lot of great stuff there. Make sure to go to dailywire.com slash shop. Go to the Matt Walsh store. And uh, this is the time to do it right before Christmas. This is what, and, I'm not, and I don't say this as a joke or ironically, uh, this is what everyone in my family is going to be getting. All right. Assuming I can get the merchandise for free, which is still not, I'm still not totally sure about it. At least maybe I'll get a 5% discount or something. Okay, this is from Andrew. It says, Matt, I am uh, getting relentless criticism from, from my incorrect peers for my belief that Arby's is much better than In-N-Out and Burger King. I know what your belief of Arby's is, so I'd like to ask, what is your message to all my friends who truly believe that Burger King and In-N-Out are superior to Arby's? Um, you know, these are people who've, you know, they kind of, kind of standard, go, going with the flow, going with the crowd, allowing themselves to be influenced by peer pressure. In and out is nothing impressive at all. Burger King, um, I, I've never been to a Burger King that was better than subpar. Like, like subpar is the best you can hope for when it comes to Burger King. And the thing is, you go to Burger King, and you know, you can run into this with all the with all the fast food places. But anytime you 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 order a Whopper from Burger King, you know you you, you try to pick it up, and it's the entire thing is scalding hot, including the bun. The mayonnaise is like magma or something because they throw the entire thing, mayonnaise, bun, and lettuce and all into the microwave before they hand it to you. Um, they don't do that with Arby's. Or if they do, you don't notice it. So I'm in agreement with you. Mike says, totally agree with Matt on the socialization of public school versus homeschool. After my 13 years of public education, I spent at least the next five years unlearning all the immature, ridiculous behaviors that I picked up in public school. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And we, we've talked before about why why is it that uh, that in fact, despite what you hear, 
public, this public school environment is not a great socialization environment. Well, the reason is that um, in many public schools anyway, like the one that I went to, you are in a classroom with 30 other kids and, uh, and one teacher and the, the adults in, are vastly outnumbered by the kids. And so you're picking up all of your social cues from other kids. That's how you're learning how to act in the world. All of your ideas about etiquette and, and, and everything and how, and how to behave, you're picking that up from other kids because you're surrounded by other kids and you live, you, you live every day in this peer culture, this kind of Lord of the Flies, ruthless peer culture. So in order to survive socially, you learn to blend in and uh, pick up cues from your, from your fellow students and act like they do. And meanwhile, they're picking up cues from you. So you're all just chasing each other's tail. You're going in a circle. In homeschooling, um, you know, there is an adult and far fewer kids. And so the kids are looking to the adult. They're picking up their social cues from the adult, their parent. And I think that's how they end up being more mature people. And oftentimes when you hear about how, how homeschoolers are weird and all of that, what you're really picking up on is that they're mature. So a weird homeschooler, you know, 17-year-old homeschooler, you think that that 17-year-old is weird. Because he is acting like a young adult, as he should. And you're so used to the 17-year-old hooligans who are emotionally and psychologically repressed and suppressed and confused. Um, now, what else we got here? Um, Brian says, why is a Sweet Baby Gang t-shirt and XL always sold out? Do you recommend that I eat more and moved into a 2XL? Or is this a lame attempt to get gang members to get in better shape? So they can fit in a large. Well, we've got a lot of big babies in the Sweet Baby Gang. So stop body shaming them. Well, you might be doing some traveling uh, this holiday. I'd recommend traveling by car if you can so that you can avoid all the craziness in the airports. But if you're doing that, that means that you got to, you know, you're, that's the gas expenses. That's when that really comes in. And that's why beforehand, get the Get Upside app. My listeners are making up to 25 cents for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free GetUpside app in the App Store or Google Play right now. Use promo code Walsh and get a bonus 25 cents on your first tank. That's up to 50 cents cash back on your first tank. 25 cents cash back uh, from there on out. Don't pay full price at the pump anymore. There's no reason to do it, especially when the price is as high as it is right now. Get cash back using GetUpside. Just download the app for free. Use promo code Walsh to get up to 50 cents a gallon cash back on your first tank. Some people who drive a lot are making hundreds of dollars a month. I mean, two, three hundred, four hundred dollars a month, and you can cash out anytime. It's very easy to do. The money goes to your bank account. It goes to PayPal. You can even put it into a, like a gift card. Whatever you want to do, just download the free Get Upside app and use promo code Walsh to get up to fifty cents a gallon cash back on your first tank. That's code Walsh. And well, we just talked about this, but I guess we'll talk about it again. The Daily Wire store is open. Uh, Daily Wire shop. DailyWire.com/shop. Uh, is open right now. All of the uh, wonderful Daily Wire merchandise is available. You can uh, check it all out there. And, uh, you know, I talked about my own store, but there is other stuff you could buy as well, like our Let's Go Brandon tailgate gear and so, so much more. Anyone can shop at the Daily Wire store, but only Daily Wire members will get special discounts up to 20% off. Members also receive access to shop exclusive merch like our extremely special baseball bat, which is uh, handcrafted in collaboration with Pillbox Bat Company and in celebration of the good old days when Cracker Jack's national anthem and Take Me Out to the Ball Game were the norm at every ball game. Uh, those were the days. So head to dailywire.com slash shop to get a little something for everyone on your list who loves Brandon and uh, or is a member of the Sweet Baby Gang. And if you're not yet a member, 
If you sign up right now at dailywire.com slash subscribe and enter code DW35, you'll get 35% off your membership and all the perks you wouldn't otherwise. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Now, to be totally honest with you, I wanted to do a big and epic cancellation today as we head into the Thanksgiving holiday, or at least as I head into it, because I won't be here tomorrow. But my plans for a grand and dramatic and perhaps even historic segment were derailed when I happened across this New York Post article and found myself, once again, highly annoyed by something relatively trivial. The forces of the universe have now compelled me again to spend our remaining minutes together talking about um, this instead. I can't help it. It's not my fault. It's this person's fault. As the New York Post reports, A distraught mom has taken to TikTok saying that she feels like a failure after learning her seven-year-old son is a bully. Now, we'll pause there for a moment just to say that um, we are already on the wrong foot anytime distraught and taken to TikTok are in the same sentence. There are many understandable things a person might reasonably do when they're distraught. Even some understandable things they might unreasonably do. But making a TikTok video is not one of them. No sincere, stable person has ever felt truly distraught and said to themselves, oh, no, I'm distraught. This is terrible. It's tragic. I'm devastated. Wait, where's my phone? This will make a great TikTok vid. No, sincere and stable people don't do that, which means that if you're doing that, you're either insincere or unstable or both, probably both. Anyway, back to the article. It says, the mom named Beth posted an emotional video to the social media site last week detailing the moment that she learned her boy had attacked an overweight peer while on board a school bus. I feel like a failure, Beth wrote beneath the clip which has been viewed more than 1.5 million times. My son came home telling me another parent threatened him for accidentally knocking his his son's glasses off his face, she explained. I believed every word that came out of his mouth. Beth decided to speak with the school bus driver after her son told her the incident occurred on board the vehicle, and she was stunned by what she found out next. Quote, the driver explained to me how this child is heavyset, and he can't get off the bus quickly. He told me how my child was shoving this boy down the aisle because he wasn't fast enough. My child ripped the boy's glasses off his face and threw them to the back of the bus. It's not funny. Um, It's not funny. Bullying is not funny. Beth said that she was left heartbroken after learning of the incident, and it really hit home as she herself had been bullied about her weight when she was a child. Okay, now in fairness to her son, you really shouldn't move faster when you're getting off the school bus. Nobody wants to be on that thing any longer than they need to be. And I'm not sure how being heavy set is an excuse here, frankly. I'm not condoning what her son did, especially because there's a distinct possibility that this woman is mentally ill and none of this really happened. She might not even have a son. The story sounds fabricated. Her son, if she has one, is acting like the stereotypical bully from like a 90s Nickelodeon cartoon. Hey, get out of my way, four eyes. I'm surprised he didn't give the kid a wedgie and then peer pressure him into smoking a cigarette out behind the bleachers or something. But assuming this really did happen, uh, we'll continue. The post says, Beth said she was left heartbroken after learning of the incident, and it really hit home as she herself had been bullied about her weight when she was a child. I do not condone condone this behavior, and it's not tolerated, the mom said, as she sobbed on screen. I don't know where to go from here. I'm obviously doing something wrong, the emotional parent confessed. Well, I've got some ideas, Beth, about what you might be doing wrong. But before I share those with you, let's take a look at one of the viral TikTok videos she made stemming from this potentially fictional incident. Um, here's one where she addressed the uh, bully. The bu- she, she addresses the bullied child directly in this video and lip syncs an inspirational song to him while weeping. You're not going to be able to appreciate the sheer cringe of this video unless you unless you see the actual visuals. So if you're listening to the audio, make sure to go over to YouTube or something to watch this because you have to see it. Uh, here it is.
these people not have anyone in their life to stop them from doing this? Do they not have anyone to say, no, this is, don't, don't. This, the cringe here is too much. That, that is a tough one to get through. Not because it's emotionally affecting, but because of the nuclear-grade secondhand embarrassment. Meanwhile, she's totally throwing her own seven-year-old son under the bus on social media in front of the entire world. Again, assuming her seven-year-old son exists, this is the real cancelable offense. Obviously, if you find out that your child has bullied another, another child, you should dole out the appropriate correction and discipline. You, sh- you should handle the situation as a parent. But what you don't need to do and should not do and shouldn't ever even think about doing is broadcast the situation on social media. You shouldn't get the public involved in your relatively routine parenting situation. Parenting is not a spectator sport. Your child is not a public figure. You don't need to issue statements and press releases if he gets in trouble at school. You keep it private. If you feel the need to reach out to a child that your bratty kid is bullied, reach out to him. Go to the bus stop and talk to him. Call his parents, whatever. You don't need to connect with him via TikTok video. He's seven. He shouldn't even know what TikTok is. And if he does, he's got bigger problems than a little scuffle on the school bus. This is a pretty widespread problem these days. Parents who essentially use their own children as clickbait, exploiting them for shares and likes. And it's not even clear to what end. I mean, unless you make a living as a content creator, why do you care about getting shares and going viral? What what good does it do you? How do you benefit? Well, I suppose it it satisfies the need for attention, a need that has grown ever stronger in the human species, more insatiable as our lives are increasingly consumed by the internet. Attention is the currency of the internet. It's the original cryptocurrency. And some people, many people, are so desperate to be rich in that kind of Bitcoin that they'll think nothing of selling out their own children. Anything for a small ration, a small taste of attention. Anything for approval and affirmation from faceless strangers who don't know you or care about you and won't remember your content 15 seconds from now. And that is why this woman, whatever her name is, because I've already forgotten, which proves my point, is canceled. That'll do it for us today and the week. Have a great Thanksgiving, and uh, I will talk to you next week. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Criminal justice reform leaves five people dead and 48 injured in Wisconsin. The GOP peddles a radical transgender bill, and mostly peaceful looters empty out three stores in San Francisco. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.